So as Rebecca mentioned, today is Transfiguration Sunday in the church. This takes place every year on the Sunday before the beginning of Lent. It's frankly quite a bizarre story. Some people don't know what to make of this story. Here's a brief summary of what happens. Jesus takes three disciples to the top of a mountain, and when they get there, he changes before their eyes. The technical term for what happens is he transfigures, and that word is important. The dictionary defines to transfigure as being a complete change in form into a more beautiful state. That means that beauty is a central part of this story. And I mention that now because I'm going to have more to say about the importance of beauty at the end of the sermon. Let's turn to the reading. This uh, particular version we're reading is from uh, the Gospel of Mark. It comes from the ninth chapter of Mark, verses 2 through 9. Let us listen to what God's Spirit is saying to the church. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, may your Holy Spirit open the eyes of our hearts to your wisdom so that deep within us we might know the hope that Christ provides. Amen. This has got to be one of my favorite stories in the Bible, partially because it is just so weird. So these disciples go with Jesus to the top of this mountain, and they have this mystical vision, and that might sound kind of cool, but they didn't think it was cool. (laughs) Their reaction was terror. Now, we actually find this idea throughout Scripture that when people encounter God, their first reaction is not comfort or peace, it's fear. And that explains why the phrase that Jesus says more than any other in the New Testament is three words, do not fear. He's always saying, do not fear, because everywhere he went, people were afraid of him. Now, interestingly, fear in the Bible is not necessarily a bad thing. Let's look for a moment at what the Bible says about fearing God. Psalm 34, fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snare of death. Proverbs 19, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever fears the Lord is satisfied. And so not only does Scripture encourage people to fear God, 
It says that to do so leads to all of these blessings, that those who fear God have wisdom and satisfaction and are a fountain of new life. And yet I think if you ask most people about their relationship to God, they wouldn't start with fear. They might talk about feeling comforted by their faith or perceiving God's love or forgiveness, all of which, of course, are very important aspects of God. And yet, according to Scripture, the first thing is fear. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. It doesn't start with love or comfort. Wisdom starts with fear. Now, the story of the transfiguration is a wonderful entry into this conversation about fear because this story shows us three aspects of God that can elicit fear in people, and I want to discuss them one at a time. In the Bible, we find that people fear God's power, they fear God's righteousness, and they fear God's beauty. First, the fear of God's power. This is probably the most obvious one. God is infinitely powerful. I mean, we're talking about the creative force behind all of reality, the power to make things, the power to destroy things. In Scripture, there is an enormous respect for the overwhelming power of God. And consequently, people understand the utter weakness and vulnerability of human beings in the face of that power. And that is clearly seen in the story of the Transfiguration. They're up on this mountain, and these disciples at this point know Jesus pretty well. They've spent months with him. They've been eating with him. They've been traveling with him. They've been learning from him. And as far as they know, he's a human being. He's a good human being. He's a smart human being. He's a good teacher. He's a powerful healer. But he's a human being. But on this mountaintop, they see something else. Jesus changes before their eyes. His clothes become dazzlingly white, and I love this detail that Mark gives us. Jesus' clothes were whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. It's a great detail, and it's important, because what he's saying is that this color was unearthly. It was not a color that comes from nature, meaning they were seeing something beyond nature. But it's not only his appearance. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear, and they begin talking with Jesus. Of course, these men have been dead for centuries. And it doesn't say the ghosts of Moses and Elijah. It says Moses and Elijah are there in the flesh, talking with Jesus, who at this point has light beaming out of his body. It's a strange scene. So what do you think their reaction should be? Should they be comforted by this enormous display of power? Should they be inspired? No, they are freaking out. They they feel like they're in danger. And in fact, Peter is so discombobulated that he tries to say something and it doesn't make sense. And, And the gospel writer Mark actually apologizes for Peter. He says, Peter did not know what to say because they were so frightened. Now that is what it means to fear God's power. It means that if God exists, he is so much greater than we usually think he is. It's been said that God is either everything or he's nothing. You can certainly say that God doesn't exist, but if you admit that he does, then the one thing you can't say is that he is powerless, because if he is real, it means he created everything. Now, in the Bible, when people encounter the raw power of God, they have a different reaction than we might expect. And I think that when the disciples saw Jesus transfigured, 
they were actually thinking of another story in the Bible that addresses this. Of course, at that time, all Jewish people were steeped in stories of the Hebrew Bible. And so the disciples, as they're going up on top of this mountain, are probably thinking of another story. And that's the story of Moses going up Mount Sinai. If you remember that story, uh, you know that God tells Moses to meet him on the mountaintop, but he warns Moses not to look directly at him. Because anybody who looked directly at God's face would die. And so to protect Moses, God hides him in a cleft in the rock so that when his glory passes over him, Moses would not die. And yet, even though he was hiding, he was still affected by the power of this of this divine presence. Because when Moses goes down the mountain, his face is glowing. Of course, he doesn't know it, but the Israelites see his face glowing and they're so terrified that they hide, right? Now, I think the disciples might have had this story in the back of their heads when they see Jesus transfigured. They know that if you look at God's face, you die. And yet the strange thing about this story is that they don't die. You know, the light in this scene is not reflected light. Moses' face had reflected light in it, but the light that they see is coming from within Christ. And so the disciples are confronting a truth that they could never have possibly imagined that this teacher they've been traveling with for these many months has within him the presence of God, that he is the glory of God. And yet in some strange way, they are able to see God's glory and live. And that is the miracle of the incarnation, that the God who stood outside of reality has come into it. If you say you understand that, I don't think you do. I don't. And yet the one thing I think that we can't do is to try to domesticate it. We have to try to preserve the frightening, raw power of this thing. N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, Put it like this, he said, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham. And then he gets right to the heart of the problem. This is, again, this is N.T. Wright. He says, most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between them. And I think that's when we say things like, Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a great social activist. Are those things true? Sure. But they do not capture the frightening thing that the disciples saw on that mountain. And what they felt was fear because they knew what that vision meant. Now, I said that there was a second reason why people fear God, and it has to do with God's righteousness. This is also evident in this story, because at its heart, the story is about the meaning of the gospel, that God saves sinners. But of course, to believe in the gospel, you have to understand that you need to be saved. And that, again, produces fear. To admit that you are hopeless on your own is a terrifying thought. You may have noticed that this reading begins with these words, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Was anybody wondering, well, what in the heck happened six days before this? 
Well, six days before this, Jesus revealed to the disciples the heart of the gospel. That humankind was so lost, he was going to have to die to save them. He said to them, I have to be arrested, I will be persecuted, I'm going to die the death of a slave, and on the sixth day, I'm sorry, on the third day, I will rise again. And none other than Peter told him to his face that he was wrong. He was afraid to admit the truth of this. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. You see, to admit that the gospel is real is to admit that you need it. It's to have the bravery to reflect on your own life and to see how hopeless you are. Most people don't have that much courage. But when you come face to face with the power of God, you see the pure goodness of God. And this then reminds you how far away your life is from that purity. And I think that is the point of something that Cammie read a few minutes ago from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul gets very vulnerable in that letter He says, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Paul was so aware of his own inability to be good that he was trembling with fear. He said, my message and my preaching were not wise, but I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And here again, I think what we're looking at is a demonstration of what it looks like to fear God. It means trusting in a power greater than yourself, respecting an infinite power that is greater than yourself, having reverence for a power that is greater than yourself. That is a kind of fear, and that alone gets rid of the greatest obstacle to faith, which is pride, thinking that you don't need the power of God in your life. Now, I have one more point to make about this, and I think it's the best yet, so I hope you're still with me. Because there is a third reason that people in the Bible fear God. They fear God because God is so beautiful. Can a beautiful thing be scary? Absolutely. Because the more beautiful something is, the less you're in control of it. For a moment, I want you to put aside all other evidence for the truth of Christianity. There is a lot of evidence for its truth. There are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. There are miracles. There are prophecies. Uh, Increasingly, we have evidence from science that I think supports the Christian faith. There are countless lives, of course, that have been changed by faith in Christ through the centuries. But for a moment, put all of that aside and just consider one question. Is the gospel beautiful? The gospel's a story. It's a story about a personal God who created people out of love and made a covenant to always protect them, which means he refuses to reject them even when they turn away from him. And because of his unwillingness to break this covenant, he eventually decides to do what only an author of creation could do. He writes himself into the story. He comes to earth in the most radical way. He's born of a peasant woman. He lives as an outcast. May I remind you that we're talking about the power behind all of creation. This infinite power walks among us. He befriends the lost. He eats with sinners. He heals the sick. He confronts the authorities, both Roman and Jewish, with a message of love that is found in surrender, losing your life in order to save it. And yet, this is not even the main point. 
Because the main point is not what he says, it's what he does. It's the way that he goes to the cross, giving his life for others. But he's not done yet. Like Orpheus, he descends into hell. But unlike Orpheus, he returns with lost souls to demonstrate that even in hell there is hope of redemption. Now, I believe this story is true. But its power to heal does not come from its factual basis. I would argue that it comes from its beauty. Because when you encounter beauty like this, it changes you. And that is why it's so scary. And yet it's precisely the dangerous power of the gospel that gives it hope. Now, if this sounds abstract, I want to end by sharing an illustration about the healing power of beauty. This comes from a wonderful movie that I'm sure some of you have seen called Almost Famous. It's about a rock and roll band whose members are not getting along. They have been on the road for a long time and they've started, frankly, to hate each other. Of course, these are rock and roll musicians, so they already have big egos. And they've got drug problems and they've got love problems and it's gotten so bad that they've stopped talking to one another. And in this one scene, they're all sitting on the tour bus, refusing to speak. Everybody is angry, everybody is defensive, everybody is tired. But then all of a sudden, they have an experience of beauty. A song comes on the speakers of the bus, Tiny Dancer by Elton John. And when those first notes begin to play, you can begin to see the anger melt off their faces. They don't want to let go of their anger, but they cannot resist the beauty of this song. One person starts to sing, and then another, more and more of them start to sing, and soon everybody on the bus is yelling out, tiny dancer at the top of their lungs. They smile, they laugh, they forgive. My primary message as a minister is not that the gospel is true, although I believe it is. It's not that the gospel heals the heart, although it does. It's not that the gospel creates justice in the world, although it does. My primary message about the gospel is that it's beautiful. Psalm 27 says, one thing I have desired, one thing, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And this, to me, is the most powerful reason to become a Christian. It's because the story we tell in church is the most beautiful the world has ever known. And that's what I think was happening on that mountaintop. Remember, the word transfigured means to become beautiful. Jesus is showing them the beauty of God. And they knew what that meant, that if we can stay close to this beauty, there will always be hope. Let's end in prayer. God, this week we prepare to begin the season of Lent. I pray that this time of fasting and prayer will be fruitful for everyone in our community. I pray that you would teach us the paradoxical wisdom of Jesus' insight that it is by losing our lives that we save them. Fill our minds with your beauty so that our faith is based on joy and hope and good news. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.